Looking at the Gospel of John and John chapter 5. And tonight's speaker is Dr. James Baird. Uh, he specializes in Christian evidences in the philosophy of religion. We've had him here several times. He also directs OC's Oklahoma Christians Honors Program. He graduated from OC as a student many years ago. Then he graduated from Harding with a master's degree. Then he went on to Oxford and graduated with a doctorate in philosophy. He taught now, he teaches now in the College of Biblical Studies, been there since 92. He's also the pulpit minister for the Wilshire Church of Christ. Jim and his wife, Yodi, have three children. Jim, come and share with us John chapter 5. There, there are notes on the back of the orange sheet, is what he is trying to say. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate that very much. It's good to be back at North MacArthur. Uh, Doug, I was telling him, he picked me up from the airport today. He is probably the most attentive host of any church that I visit. I mean, he really does make it very, very smooth and very easy to come and do uh, a meeting like this, and so you should be proud of him, because I know he has to do this every week for different speakers coming in, or maybe I'm just special, maybe I'm the only one he likes, and <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyway, thank you so much for hosting me, and thank you so much for putting on this series. This is this is good work that you all are doing. I am, as uh, was mentioned, I am a a father now. And uh, last week was Father's Day. Do you want to hear my best dad joke? Because I have uh, three kids, and the last, I'm about to kind of age out of the father zone. My last child is a junior in college, so uh, that, that father age is, is fading fast. But I still get the eye rolls for dad jokes. You want to hear my best dad joke? Okay, here it is. You can, you can use this one. So a girl comes in. She looks lovingly at her father and says, Dad, can I have $50? And he looks lovingly back at her and says, $40? What in the world do you need $30 for? That's, a, that's as good as it gets, sorry. If you want gems, go to South Africa. Um... I am a granddad as well, six times over. I've got six grandkids. So the cool thing is, as my dad jokes age out, I can recycle them as granddad jokes. It's, it's wonderful. So you want to hear my current best-selling granddad joke? Okay, this one, this one kills with six-year-olds. How many... How many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? Ten tickles. That's exactly right. <laughs> You're not six. What's with that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. None of that has anything to do with what I'm talking about tonight, but I, I just, uh, Doug's uh, hilarious story got me in the mood. Um, so you guys are working through these great passages about Jesus, and, and I got this passage 
this story and this verse in John chapter 5, my father is working right up till now, and I am working. This John 5 verse 17 passage. And uh, I'm excited to talk about that because I think that's an important, important verse for John's whole whole theme of his gospel. Let me see if this clicker... Hey, the, the clicker is working great. Is that where the passage is? There it is, right there. Um, Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I am working... This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Um, John is not subtle about telling us who Jesus is. If you go back to the beginning of John's Gospel... He just lays it on the line right at the start in his prologue, right? Do you remember how his prologue goes? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, how does it end? Was God. That's exactly right. And he goes on and talks about how that Word is, is, is how God Formed the world. Nothing that's made at all is made without that word. That's a profound piece of theology in itself. It's worth really thinking about. And then down in verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh. And and I like the old translation, and dwelt among us. You remember that? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us last year at our church, Wilshire. We did a long sermon series on all the uh, temple and tabernacle style verses. I mean, we went back to the patriarchs, the sacrifice passages, and all the places where the temple kind of event takes place. And that word dwelt, in the form that it's used here, is a tabernacle uh, verb. Um, it, it's, 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 it has to do, it calls to mind the pitching of a tent. We don't have a English word that accurately translates it the way it's used sometimes in the Old Testament, uh, especially when it's modified. Uh, it, it, but it would be like tabernacling. Tabernacling. It's kind of like, a little bit like God is roughing it. Uh, Uh, But it's a lot like God is choosing to enter into the life of his people by by making a place where he can live. Dwelt among his people. And that's a piece of theology that runs all through the Old Testament, right? It's, It's a huge thing that God is trying to dwell with his people. Glenn Pemberton has an interesting study of the book of Leviticus. How many of you live in uh, housing additions that have rules? You know, your grass can't get longer than this, and you can't park more than five pickups in the grass, and you know that, <laughs> right? Okay, so, 
So, I mean, most neighborhoods try to keep up the property values by, by having rules. What kind of rules would you have if God lived in your neighborhood? Well, the book of Leviticus, and in a sense, the whole law of Moses, is kind of, these are the rules. We need these rules because God has chosen to dwell among us. He's put himself, he's put his presence in a special way in this tabernacle. And then later, of course, he has it in the temple. And again, uh, Jerusalem, you're special. Jews, you're special. Israel, you're special. What other nation in the world has God living with them like that? Has, has God's physical address in their city? God has chosen to dwell with you. And what is happening in the New Testament is we're beginning to realize that that was only, as amazing as the temple was and the tabernacle was, that was only phase one of God's plan. Phase two is starting to happen in the life of Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus says, my father's working, so I am working, making himself equal with man. Jesus is God, but he is tabernacling in a human body. He is choosing to enter into this world, to be next to us. Even though the people he has to be next to are guys like Simon Peter and Matthew the tax collector and the the angry twins, I like to call them, James and John, the sons of thunder, you know? Uh, That's who he's choosing to live right next to. He dwelt among us. God is choosing to be in the body. And he acts like that's true. He acts like he's the temple. That's one of the things that gets him into trouble. People went to the temple to, uh, you know, have fellowship with God. And Jesus just says, well, they're having a meal over here. Let's go do that. And that turns into a temple meal. And uh, people go to the temple to, to, you know, get their diseases, to pray for the healing of their diseases. And Jesus just kind of stops by the side of the road and starts healing people without a license or anything. And, and people, you know, go to the temple to try and get out from under bad influences. And Jesus just, uh, you know, bad influence, get out. Evil spirits, gone. People go to the temple so they can have their sins forgiven. This probably is the thing that got Jesus in the most trouble. They go to the temple to have their sins forgiven, and Jesus just says, okay, your sins are forgiven. He acted like the physical temple didn't matter anymore, and that wherever he was is the temple now, because that's the truth. My father is working until now, and I am working. Just lost all my notes. That's okay. And that's my own technology. You know, if you push the volume button, it really doesn't do a lot for you. John's great message in his gospel is this, and this is that first thing of notes for you to fill in, that when we see Jesus... We're seeing God, as much God as our flesh can manage. When we see Jesus, we are seeing God, as much God as our flesh 
can manage. Just so you get the message later on in John's gospel, he actually has Philip ask the big question. John chapter 14. You know, you've been talking about mansions in heaven and stuff. Could you just show us the Father, Jesus? John 14. Remember how Jesus answers him? Verse 9. Have you been with me so long and you don't know? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Philip. When you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at the purest representation of God that your flesh and blood eyes are capable of. Now, why is that such a big deal? This is a huge and fundamental claim for Christianity. It's been argued over. It's sometimes been fought over. Uh, It's been debated. It's been studied. That Jesus is, in fact, just as human as you are, just as human as I am. But he's also God, tabernacling in that same flesh, dwelling in that same flesh. My father's working, so of course, I'm working. That's the truth. Why is that a big deal? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and we could, we could spend probably the rest of our time and a few other weeks talking about why that's a big deal. But for one thing, and this matters in the Gospel of John, actually, for one thing, this tells us that nothing supersedes the revelation what is revealed by God who comes in the flesh like that. Nothing. If somebody comes along after this and says, well, but I've, but I've had a new prophecy, and I've, we're going to go, well, but we've seen God in the flesh. We've learned from God in the flesh. Well, but, but it was a really good prophecy. It's like the angel Gabriel spoke to me and started dictating this cool poetry. Yeah, but still. Doesn't trump God coming in the flesh now, does it? But I had these cool glasses and I could read golden tablets. It was really neat. Sorry. It's not, I mean, it's, that's cool and all, but it's, it, it doesn't trump what happens in this moment, this once in the history of humanity moment when God takes on flesh. Everything that's happened prior to that moment cannot help but turn and focus on that moment. Everything that's happened since, whether people realize it or not, looks back to that moment when God took on flesh. My father is working, so of course I am working. When we look at Jesus, we're seeing the best representation of God. If you're you're confused by the scriptures... You, you interpret the scriptures themselves. There are a lot of weird things in the Old Testament and some weird things in the New Testament, too. If you're confused by those, how do you do that? You go back to God in the flesh and, and, and test again and again by who Jesus is and what he is and how he teaches you. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. That's actually an important point in and of itself. So, let's back up. That's this, that's this fundamental passage that I was asked to comment on, uh, this John 5.17 passage. But I want to move on to another passage. Oops. Okay, that didn't work at all. 
What did I do? Right there. Okay. It's good. I have a little screen here. Me and technology. Not the greatest combo. So how does the story open up? John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. I'll put those up so some of you can read that. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, was a pool. In Aramaic, it's called uh, Bethesda, uh, which is uh, five-roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another one steps in before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. I guess I should click this. There we go. Take up your bed and walk. And at once, the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath as it happens, and that leads to the next part of the story. But Jesus comes, he sees people who are sick, he actually just picks one and heals that person. And it's a great story for that person, 30 some odd years without being able to make your legs do what you want, 30 some odd years without being able to even carry your own uh, bedroll, And Jesus comes along and says, get up, pick up your bedroll and walk. And without even thinking, I think, the guy just all of a sudden scoops up and stands on feet that haven't worked for over three decades. It's a great moment. You know, I I mean, just psychologically, do you wonder what that was? You know, it's just like, just when Jesus talks, you kind of do it. And then afterwards, and so so afterwards, and then suddenly he's looking and saying, what is going on? And by the time he kind of recovers from that, Jesus has vanished into the crowd. And uh, it, it's kind of a, a neat moment. Jesus comes back to him a little later and talks to him. What's going on there? Well, it's one of Jesus' miracles. I mean, it's, he does a lot of these healing miracles. He doesn't heal everybody. But he heals a lot of people. And if you couple that with what we just read there in verse 17 down through verse 20. My father's working till now, so I'm working. You get a pretty profound truth. And the truth is this one. All health and every healing is the work of God. The Son only put that truth on miraculous display. All health and every healing is the work of God. The Son only put that truth on miraculous display. The miracles of Jesus are not random. They aren't just, you know, nothing up my sleeve, Presto, turn water into wine. 
All of the miracles are kind of targeted. They're targeted in a specific way. Every miracle Jesus ever does reveals something about who God is or what God wants to happen in the world or a lot of them reveal what it's going to be like when finally, completely, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what those miracles are. Everything kind of points to that. And so when Jesus heals somebody, he's not saying, uh, you know, out of the blue from nowhere comes healing. He's just saying, of course, I'm God in the flesh. Healing comes naturally to me because God's been healing us all along. All health comes from God. It always has come from God. All health, anything that makes you healthy, has, is a blessing from God. I've made this point to people many, many times. Health is such a common condition to us that we don't notice it. Right? How many of you have ever gotten up uh, and said, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm going to have to go to the doctor because I think I need him to diagnose my ease. My ease. I need somebody to diagnose my ease. Anybody ever gone to the doctor to get an ease diagnosis? You go to the doctor to get a dis-ease diagnosis, but you don't go to the doctor to get an ease diagnosis. Why is that? Because you don't even notice you're being given ease all the time. Who's giving that to you? Ease, health. That's always been the gift of God. The only time we notice it is when some of it drops away. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where God's influence is blocked, sometimes by human sin, sometimes by the accumulation of the damage that sin has done to the world. Uh, And sometimes, you know, this is is a not-yet-finished world, I think. God gave some of the world for us to complete. And so some diseases just from that. But, but all the health there is has always been God's doing. Yeah, I admit, we don't thank him most of the time for that. But the fact that we aren't grateful, or as grateful as we should be, doesn't change the reality. And every time somebody gets well, we may not realize it's God who's doing that. But without the action of God, Nobody would ever get well. We could do all the surgeries in the world. We could administer all the drugs in the world. Without the possibility of health that God has created, nobody would ever get well. All health, all healing has always, all the time, been the work of God. So, of course, when God the Son comes, who's doing the work that he sees the Father doing, Naturally, what's going to happen? Health and healing. Health and healing. You're going to have to give me a high sign when we get close because I cannot read that clock for nothing. Y'all ready to be here till Thursday? Because <laughs> that could totally happen. This is, a, this is a pretty profound point. This is a point I wish I could uh, get 
greater penetration into our Christian communities and into the culture in general. I actually think that our Christian communities, as well as the culture in, in general, kind of lives in the deism zone way more than we live in the God zone. And, I, and there are a lot of reasons why I think that's happened, but, but a lot of us kind of are deistic in the way we think about God. The symptoms of deism are this. The more I tend to think, well, there's nature over here, and it kind of runs by itself and does its own thing, and then there's the supernatural over here. And maybe sometimes the supernatural might occasionally break into the natural world. You know? And then, and then you can argue about what what kind of supernatural things there might be. There are some people who think there are ghosts. There are other people who think that's foolish. Uh, and there are you know, people who think there's magic and other people who think, well, if there is, you should stay away from it. Christians are in that second category. Um, and there are people who say, yeah, God's kind of like a ghost. He's supernatural and maybe he occasionally breaks in. In fact, you can... I think the whole argument between Pentecostals and non-Pentecostals is really all carried out in the terms set by deism, which are not biblical terms at all. You know, we got the natural world. How much does God break in from outside and do miracles? You know, how much does he interrupt the flow of things? And, and, you know, one side says, well, he does it a lot. He does it every step. And the other side says, no, he doesn't because of 1 Corinthians 13. And, you know, and people go back and forth and argue about how much. And all of, none of that is based on Scripture. That's based on a worldview that was started being developed in the 1600s, 1700s, uh, this deistic worldview that somehow nature runs by itself. Where in the Bible is the doctrine that nature stands by itself? The doctrine that's in the Bible is the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky tells his handiwork, shows his handiwork. The the doctrine of the Bible is that Yes, if there are things that happen regularly enough for us to depend on it, that's because God's being faithful to his creation. God is being kind to us. He's giving us a blessing. The sun rises, the sun sets. We get summer, we get fertility, we get the crops growing. That's not some blind, random force of nature doing that. That's always been God doing that, just like it's always been God giving us health It's always been God giving us the blessings of a creative and fruitful earth. And everything else about the world, that is true. So Jesus comes along and he just shows us, he kind of puts on display the different characteristics of God. What was his first miracle in John's gospel? Water into wine. There have been some Christians that have puzzled their head about that one, right? Why would he do that? And he made so much. (laughs) What's going on with that? He made gallons of the stuff. (laughs) You know? Well, it's been pointed out many, many times. He is just compressing and making really visually startling to us 
what God always does. Wine is one of the many symbols in the Old Testament of God's overflowing kindness to us in the fertility of the earth. God could just be doling out just enough to keep body and soul together for us, but God doesn't act like God wants to just give us plenty. He wants to make our faces shine with joy. He wants our hearts to be glad. God loves doing that. He loves the fertility of the earth that he's made for us. We kind of want to rope it off and get more for ourselves. And, you know, we create extra problems, hunger and so forth, because we're greedy. But but God just loves being generous in his world. It makes sense that when God comes in the flesh, he tabernacles in the flesh. Sure, let's turn water into wine and let's do it real fast so people notice If you're following along in your Bible, you can look at what happens in verse 9. That's when the controversy comes up over this Sabbath issue. I'll see if I can find that for us here. Is that it? Yeah, okay. Now, at once the man gets up, he takes the uh, bed, and he walks. And the day he did it was the Sabbath, and that's what gets Jesus in trouble. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed... It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is that man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who'd been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. He said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And that was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus answered them, my father's working till now, and I am working. That's a great, great passage. He says... God's working on the Sabbath. You enjoying a little sunshine this Sabbath? God's doing that right now. You enjoying having a little air to breathe? God's doing that too. God's working, so of course I'm working. Working to bless does not violate the Sabbath. That's not what the Sabbath is about. And this illustrates another of the important points. There are several points we could derive from this one, but here's one I want to focus on. The scriptures are the work of God, of course. So naturally, the sun begins to show us the way past our distortions of scripture. If, if God in the flesh comes, one of the things you might expect to happen is what starts happening here. He just, by his actions... Of course, also by his teachings, too. But by his actions, he begins to kind of put our little distortions and selfish, you know, interpretations of Scripture, self-serving interpretations of Scripture. He kind of puts those side by side with, with God acting in the flesh and helps us to kind of get over some of the barriers we put to properly understanding Scripture. He sort of starts stripping away some of the mess that we make of 
what God has revealed to us. And that's what's going on with the Sabbath day. Uh, God gave the Sabbath to be a blessing to human beings. Jesus, in another gospel, says the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant to give people a day of rest. You can't just work 24-7. I know some of you think you can. God says don't. Uh, uh, you need a day of rest. God actually programmed in a day of rest. You need to take time off. Um, and that's what it's for. And of course you need to take time off also to think about what's higher and holier. What's really important to reorient yourself. Because if you work all the time, you're just going to drift deeper and deeper and deeper into one particular mode of life that's not healthy to stay in all the time. So you need that. It's meant to bless your life. But what had happened to the Sabbath? Actually, not too long after Jesus lived, uh, the Jews write down all the traditions that the rabbis were teaching about the Sabbath. And this is just the Pharisees. There were several groups of Jewish teachers. But the Pharisees' Jewish teaching gets written down in a book. It's one of the books of a collection of books or pamphlets we call the Mishnah. And you can read the Mishnah. It's all online now and translated for you. But the Mishnah has seven little pamphlets, or seven sections of the pamphlet that cover how you're supposed to keep the Sabbath day. I mean, it is incredibly intricate, the rules and regulations that were derived from the, the pretty simple commands that are in the law of Moses, keep the Sabbath day holy. Keep the Sabbath day holy. And there are rules about, well, how much weight can you carry on the Sabbath day and it, and it still be okay, you know, or when do you cross the, how far can you walk? And it, it, well, you can walk this far, but if you cross a bridge, that, you know, that gets you in trouble and, and so forth. And all of these different things. How did that happen? Well, even when you take something from Scripture and you mean well by it, there is that tendency to say, hmm, we're going to practice this in a way that honors God, uh, but also sets our group apart from that group over there. And, and by the time Jesus comes in the world, some of the groups of Jews had ways of niceties about practicing the Sabbath that they sought set them apart, made them a little holier than some of the other Jews. And and some of those Jews didn't like that, and they had their own little rules about how to obey the Sabbath. And that process over time kind of gets iterated and generates more of those little niceties of interpretation. And, and pretty soon, uh, everybody's got their own little kingdoms of Scripture carved out among the Jews. This is how you're supposed to obey the Sabbath. This is how you're supposed to wear your long fringes that the law of Moses talked about. This is what you do with your sideburns, and this is what you do with your little phylactery and prayer boxes. And you do all of that based on Scripture, but driven oftentimes much more by the rivalry between these different interpretive groups, you know, within the Jewish. And everybody's kind of defending their turf. Meanwhile, how do the common people fare with that? Well, Jesus says it really nicely in Matthew. He says, 
you bind these heavy burdens on people and you don't even lift a finger to try and make their life better. Your interpretations become a burden. Everybody starts out wanting to just obey the law of Moses, but human selfishness comes in and starts to kind of claw for, well, we can obey God and also serve our interests, can't we? And that's how that's one of the ways we get distortions of Scripture. It's just refreshing. Jesus just comes in, and here's somebody who's, as a human being, completely sold out to the will of God. Just, your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. And when he acts, he just acts spontaneously. This is what God would do in this situation, and we see that happening. And so, uh, when we look at Scripture and we compare it to him, that helps our brains to reorient and to come back around and to see Scripture the way that it should be. Well, I am at the end of my time, and so I will, I will give you the last bit. If you want to write in John 5, verses 24 through 29, here's how you fill in the blanks. This is, a, this is where Jesus reveals... Everybody knew that the work of God is to judge the living and the dead. That was standard teaching of the Jews by this point in time, that God will call the dead and and there will be a judgment. John reveals this truth. In the coming of the Son, we meet our judge face to face. The Son actually is given the task of judging humanity. When you hear the voice of God at the end of time, it's going to be Jesus' voice. And he's the one that you're going to meet on Judgment Day. All right, thank you so much, and I will uh, turn it back over to Doug.